everyone, I'm Riyadh Alkyol and this is Dignified Resilience, a podcast on fresh narratives on confronting despair, alleviating distress, and forging ahead. In this podcast, we hear from people around the globe at all stages of life and variety of industries and learn how to channel dignified resilience to survive, feed the soul to heal, and connect with others through inspiring compassionate actions and behavior. At the same time, I aim to grow a global conversation that seeks to better acknowledge different sociocultural perspectives on meaningfully weathering life's adversities and achieving well-being. Here is a noble and humane invitation for surpassing our old selves by learning about and from other people's moving forces and limitations for successfully overcoming affliction and ache. Remember, we have different lives, distinct pathways, cultures, and contexts, but we can find common ground in supporting dignified resilience anywhere. So let's go then. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dignified Resilience. It's been a while now that I have been looking forward to host Amra Shabich El Reyes at Dignified Resilience, and I'm excited to have this conversation, and I'm grateful that it's finally happening. Uh, Professor Amra Shabich El Reyes uh, is the author of the highly acclaimed book titled The Cat I Never Named, A True Story of Love, War, and Survival, published by Bloomsbury last year. Um, and this stunning memoir that I have read that I warmly recommend to all of you and that we will talk about today as the basis of our conversation talks about a Muslim teen struggling to survive in the midst of the Bosnian genocide. And it has received starred reviews from, be ready because the list is long, but I want you to hear about it from Publishers Weekly, Booklist, School Library of Journal, Kirkus Review, School Library Collection, Forward Reviews. It was announced as 2020 book, um, best book by Kirkus Review, actually. Uh, it got 2021 Excellence in Nonfiction for Young Adults Award. It was finalist for 2020 uh, Junior Library Guild Gold Standard. And besides this must-read book, an extraordinary achievement, uh, Dr. Sabuchel Reyes is Associate Professor of Practice, Project Director at Center for Benefit Cost Studies in Education at Teachers College in Columbia University. She's affiliated faculty at Harriman Institute for Russian, Eurasian, and Eastern European Studies at uh, Columbia University. And she's an interdisciplinary scholar who leverages fields of economics, sociology, and political science to address the questions of radicalization, discrimination, Islamophobia, social mobility, corruption, and exclusion of women. It's really a truly honor and privilege to have her with me today um, because she works on uh, concrete ways as well on uh, facilitating women's social mobility through better financial inclusion and access to all kinds of services. So her interdisciplinary work is precious in so many ways. Amra, Congratulations on this wonderful, beautifully written book, despite the morose topic that you address. Um, it is so great to follow and observe these acknowledgements throughout the weeks and months that we have been first um, in touch. And thank you for joining me and welcome to Dignified Resilience. Let me start by asking, how are you today? Thank you so much. I am so delighted to finally see you. I've been <laughs> admiring you from distance through our social media contacts. Um, but I am so delighted to have this conversation. I am doing uh, great, enjoying this, looking at the snow outside through the window. So mm -hmm. we'll have electricity and internet. So it's a good yeah. day. Yeah. Thank you. And so there's so much to talk about. Let's dive in. Um, 
At one point in your book, you write that when having to ponder on one school assignment, that you write how you don't know if you will ever be able to talk about the things that you've seen. And I know how difficult it is to talk and to really relive actually painful memories each time. We know from trauma studies how uh, triggering and how people who talk about it relive it every time. So it's even more admirable that all survivors like yourself keep talking about their lived experiences. Can you tell our listeners and viewers what made you then decide to write this book? What inspired you to kind of start digging within those painful memories to share it with all of us? That's a great question. Um, as you know, it's been quite a few years since the genocide against Bosniaks in Bosnia ended in 1990s. And um, I have thought about writing my story many times. Um, often, in fact, it, it has been my students um, in the classrooms at Columbia University who have said to me when I would share a story or a detail that would get a particular theoretical point across in a more visceral and emotional way, um, they would say, Professor Amra, when will you uh, write your story? Because those are the moments often when they leave Columbia, they'll write to me and say, those are the moments that are still vivid in my memory that have shaped who I am uh, simply by you sharing um, your experiences with us. But there was a moment a couple of years ago when my younger daughter, Dina, who is a third, who was a third grader at the time at the school in New York City, she came home and she asked me, mom, what will happen to Jana, her older sister and, and me, if you and dad are rounded up and taken away as Muslims? And that was the question from a third grader born and raised and educated in New York City that really terrified me. It uh, jolted me in a way that nothing else ever did and uh, made me realize that in many ways I was abdicating for all these years my responsibility as a genocide survivor to lend my story to the public, to educators, to experience what I had lived through and make judgments on their own. This is not the story that preaches. This is not the story filled with historical details and facts and trends. This is simply a lived experience of survival during the genocide. And that was that conversation with Dina sparked my thinking that I simply, I simply couldn't go back to sleep. I kept thinking that I have to sit down and write the story before it's too late for America, before it's too late for the world. And um, obviously this happened a couple of years ago, so I didn't know where we, where we would be in 2020, uh, but clearly everything that has transpired in recent months and years is uh, simply a confirmation that my fears were legitimate at that time. And I am delighted that the book, in fact, came out in 2020. It was a perfect timing. Mm. So how did the very process of writing flow? Was it more difficult or maybe easier than you had expected if you had any expectations? And because there are some quite numerous difficult scenes uh, described quite vividly. So I was wondering uh, while reading it, whether there were also discussions with your editor or were you choosing how to, whether to proceed with them? Should you have modified the language or not? Um, did you think it was harsh uh, for young adult audience, maybe that this book is kind of uh, dedicated to, even though I 
as I think it's perfectly suitable both for um, adults and um, young adults as well. I'm glad to have read them. I think it's as tough as it is. I am among those who think that it should be out there, but I'm curious, how did the process of writing go for you while you were doing it? You know, I, I'm of the view that, that we can protect um, uh, young adults from experiencing what they're experiencing in the United States today. There are many young people who are, uh, and around the world, that experience hatred, discrimination, sexual violence, and it's never by choice. Victims don't choose what they're um, uh, when they become targets. And so it wasn't my choice as a 16-year-old to um, survive genocide. And um, for that reason, I thought it was really important for me to portray this story in the language um, that would reflect who I was um, at 16 in Bosnia so that young people in America and around the world can actually relate um, on many levels. I was a normal teen. I played volleyball. I was about to fall in love with the boy. I had lots of friends. Uh, I was a math and physics nerd. Um, and so uh, there was nothing about me that one would think is particularly uh, 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 strange, odd, or different that would have put me at risk for genocide. And so I wanted with that idea to relate that hatred is not exclusive to any one region, any one nation, any one person. It can happen anywhere. And that message is important to be delivered to young adults as much as the adults. Um, in the process of writing, I would say um, to respond to your question on difficulty of writing, it was, um, it was a scary process at first. I did worry that um, I would dive deep into this emotional whirlpool of memories and that perhaps this time I, couldn't be, I wouldn't be strong enough to pull myself out. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that's one of the reasons why many genocide survivors stay away from certainly publicly making themselves mm-hmm. vulnerable and in some cases targets of the attacks for sharing their stories as it has happened to me. Um, but I now looking back, I would say that the process was much more empowering and validating than I ever thought that it would be. Um, partly because I have received thousands of reactions from around the world from genocide survivors who have said, I am speaking through you, through your book, you represent me. And seeing your story on the page is validation of my own experience, my own pain. And so um, in a way, I um, had written a book that is a memoir, that is my lived story, but it is also a story through which Many other stories are told, um, and that has been um, that has been deeply emotional for me. I did not expect that kind of reaction um, to be as overwhelming and as um, emotional and as positive as it has been over the last couple of months. And that's so really powerful and important uh, to be heard as well in terms of the echoes uh, that the a book, a story uh, can can create in terms of the waves and the opening up that might maybe even bring some sort of healing eventually to those who dare to do it. That said, the book is described as the stunning memoir of a Muslim teen struggling to survive in the midst of Bosnian genocide. And we do hear 
and we know about the Srebrenica genocide, we know about the siege of Sarajevo, and I'm sure that there are a lot of listeners who might be familiar with the details of the aggression on Bosnia and Herzegovina. And I know, and though we cannot go through the entire process of disintegration of Yugoslavia right now and those uh, that military part and how different parts went through it, I think it's also important, uh, and I would wish that you tell our listeners and viewers about your background in terms of where uh, this book and where you have lived as well to kind of also, as I always like to emphasize, remind our listeners and viewers that Srebrenica genocide was a culmination of uh, years of um, eradication attempts in entire Bosnia and that it's Foča and Prijedor and Visegrad and Bihać, etc. So can you please tell us a little bit about um, your geographical background in terms of where Bosnia, uh, where you were situated in Bosnia? Of course. So um, uh, the best way to 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 sum it up is that that Bihać was this uh, critical city, really a pocket, because it wasn't only the the town or city of Bihać, but also surrounding villages and areas uh, in northern western part of the country that was sort of isolated from um, any other free area in Bosnia. And as you know, um, those areas were very limited, given that we didn't have the military to defend ourselves when uh, Serbia, um, as an aggressor, invaded Bosnia and, and occupied a vast majority of the country, obviously with the help of the military, with the Serb military within Bosnia. And so I lived in this um, uh, besieged pocket for 1,150 days, where on the um, side that bordered uh, only a few miles away from my hometown with Croatia, um, there was Serb military that occupied Croatia. And so we couldn't access the outside world um, through Croatia, couldn't exit uh, the Bihać pocket. And then uh, on the east side, we were surrounded by um, Serbs in, in Bosnian territory. And so uh, we really had no uh, contact with the outside world. Uh, we had no electricity for nearly those uh, four years. We had no normal schooling and we were under constant bombing. And there's, in fact, a book that was published um, in Bosnia a couple of years ago that uh, is simply based on um, evidence of um, all of the mass graves in that part of uh, Bosnia. So, mm -hmm. the area that was controlled by Serbs around the Bihać pocket, mm -hmm. uh, there is the evidence of about 1,000 mass graves in that region. And this was evidence established by uh, the Commission for Disappeared Persons that has spent last 20 plus years discovering those mass graves. And so uh, that may not be publicized. They may not be present um, in, in sort of public sphere, but it did happen. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I always underline the genocide um, as an intentional eradication of an entire group of people happened in the whole Bosnia and Herzegovina. As you said, Srebrenica became known because of um, uh, just the brutal way in which it happened and the role that the UN played in the process. But I can tell you that during the siege, and just before um, Srebrenica occurred, there were conversations in my hometown, and I uh, vividly remember them, that uh, Srebrenica was asked to uh, uh, give their weapons, whatever weapons they had, 
um, so that uh, Serbs could come in and nothing will happen to them and they will be protected by the UN. And we know what happened with this, that story now. But there were conversations that uh, uh, my hometown of Bihać was the next safe area that would do the same. And um, once uh, we in Bihać Pocket realized that uh, genocide occurred in Srebrenica, I think there was no question that we had no option but um, either fight to survive uh, or um, or simply uh, 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 giving giving up on our own survival was not an option because nobody was going to protect us. UN was not going to protect us. No one was, was going to intervene. And so that realization, I think, gave us um, some level of resilience to really uh, uh, fight as, as hard as we could with as limited resources as we had against a very powerful military that wanted to eradicate us. And we'll talk a little bit more precisely about that resilience. And I, you talk about it at the end of your book, etc. Uh, I do want to. I always say this podcast is about dignity, resilience. It's also about relationships uh, between people. Um, I talk about animals as well, and so I don't want to forget Matsi. Uh, so I, before we continue, I want to uh, tell our listeners, and if you could uh, unpack it a little bit, if you can share who was Matsi, how you met him. It's one of the central characters of the book. So what's, tell us a little bit about the importance for your family and yourself. So Matsi in Bosnian, as you know, means basically kitty. And um, it was a moment that I described in the book. I won't go into details to reveal too much. But there was a moment in the book that was uh, uh, fairly scary for me as a 16-year-old Muslim girl at the time where my father and I encountered refugees coming into our city. So uh, just before the siege of Bihać, um, uh, People were coming in, Bosniaks, Bosnian Muslims were coming in from all the other surrounding villages and areas that Serb military was ethnically cleansing. And so whoever survived and managed to get to Bihać was entering the city and it was pretty obvious that brutal things were happening. And that is when I start realizing that my life is about to change. Um, and in that uh, moment, I encounter um, this cat that... Uh, sort of showed up out of nowhere and decides to follow my dad and me home. And we did not want, I have to be honest, we did not want a pet. Uh, one, <laughs> one reason was I that, remember that something horrible is about to happen. We had no food. Uh, the war's supply of food is uh, 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 lesser and lesser. And so my parents were concerned that they couldn't uh, feed us, let alone another living being. Uh, my mom didn't like hair uh, on furniture, and I was attacked by a German Shepherd when I was little. So I um, was never quite comfortable with animals after that. But this uh, Matsi simply wouldn't leave. Um, she would go from a window to a window and kind of with her paws knock on the, on the doors and um, uh, adopted herself into her family. And what is particularly unique about um, this um, animal is that in many ways she symbolizes this love that I didn't experience uh, with people who were surrounding my city on the hills with artillery, who were viscerally hating me and trying to kill me. And this Mati was really counterforce to that. She had this loyalty and unparalleled love. There's a moment in the book where um, she 
comes back home uh, some 35, equivalent to 35 miles away from our house. She comes back, she finds us. And we knew the stories of dogs being able to do that, but we never knew that there was a uh, there was a cat that was capable of doing that. And her, so her love was sort of this thread that kept me alive and believing that, in fact, there is humanity um, out there. And perhaps it sometimes comes from animals rather than humans. And... There were so many parts in the book. There were so many lines. There were so many parts that are underlined and so many scenes that are so memorable. And I don't know if it's possible to uh, give it out or it, uh, without giving out too much. But uh, one of the really, really memorable scenes, but also lessons, uh, greater lessons for all readers, despite uh, regardless of their experience, was... Um, as the war raged on for days and months and years, at one point you describe how you took refuge in your cousin's basement and you write about your confinement there. And there is this, at the end of that chapter, a scene with your father and the conversation with your father about you trying to express your feelings about feeling guilty, et cetera, and then what he tells you. Um, can we tell that part a little bit? I think that conversation with what your dad told you and then your own conclusion is so memorable. I have the sentences here. I watch them. And even while I'm talking to you, I'm seeing how powerful they are. Is there a way that we can tell our listeners and viewers about um, what was it that you were thinking about good person, bad person, and what being a good or bad person, even in those circumstances meant for you? I think it really, that conversation relates to, to several conversations that happened through the book with my parents, my, and just to give um, your audience a bit of a context, my mother uh, was a teacher um, and growing up, um, she was this character who would always bring kids who were excluded um, or who had uh, trouble in school to try to help them and lift them up. And then my father was um, another incredible individual who um, actually uh, walked himself. This is these details are not in the book, but he walked himself to um, an orphanage um, after World War II um, without shoes, holding his only humanitarian pair of shoes in his hands because he wanted to save them. And then later on, he traded them for a, a toothbrush because he he learned that there's such a thing as a toothbrush. Um, and he traded his shoes uh, with another orphan who had um, a toothbrush. So there were these characters in my life that were uh, uh, really unique um, uh, individuals who had great hearts. Um, and even uh, when I had moments during the war where, where I wandered, um, uh, and there were quite a few where I was angry at people who were killing me, and I wanted to hate because... Uh, when your family is targeted, when your home is bombed, uh, my mother, as you know, became deaf um, during the bombing of our house. Um, and when you lose those that you love simply for who they were, because they were Bosnian Muslims, that was the only reason we were being executed one after another. There's this temptation that you want to be a bad person in return, that you want to hate in return. And um, it was really uh, my father who was the guiding light as much as my mom, but that conversation was with my dad, where he constantly engaged in these probing conversations um, to get me eventually to conclude that the good people 
um, uh, cannot submit to those temptations because we then continue to reciprocate the same kind of hate and somebody has to stop that circle of violence. And, and so that's a lesson that is repeatedly uh, uh, present in, um, in my story. And I would say there was also a moment when that lesson became lived experience for me where I decided I can't stop these people from hating me. There's nothing I can do as a victim of hate to make someone accept and love me for who I am. But what I can do is reflect internally who it is that I want to be as a human being. So I focused on learning, self-educating. As you know, there's a lot of learning that happens in this book. Um, I focused on trying to uh, teach in the classroom. I was, of all things, asked to teach English, uh, which I actually did not speak or know at the time, but I was teaching myself. And given that we lack teachers, some were injured, some were killed, some left uh, the country or the city before the war, I was asked to help out. So even the little knowledge that I had was more valuable than no knowledge at all. Um, and so there were many experiences uh, where I had realized that I did not want to be or reflect um, be, become a mirror image of those who hated me around uh, uh, from the hills around my city, that I wanted to be uh, someone very, very different. And those lessons, thankfully, were learned uh, because of the conversations in the book with my father and my mother. Mm, and that partly also answers uh, what I wanted to ask you next, and that was that you loved going to school during the war as well. While you, as you write for other kids and teens, it seemed that was the best part that they got to skip the school. So, and you told us about your background in terms of mom's profession as well, how school mattered to you even in those difficult circumstances, and um, how you actually continued afterwards, right? As you say, in terms of your career and how you instilled that uh, those values through your everyday work. We'll talk a little bit more about that and your current and future work and mission and what this book has already accomplished. You you said it a little bit. There is another very important episode um, spurred precisely by you. Um, you're in your mom's desire to procure food to sell in a small store. But can we talk a bit about, I mean, that's one of the most gruesome yet most powerful scenes and um, just unforgettable and very memorable. I can only imagine how difficult it was for you to write it, to keep talking about it. And uh, yet it helps so much to tell others about it. Does it not? Um, you know, as you were um, starting to ask this question, I realized the moment I realized where you're going with this um, uh, question, um, I always react with goosebumps. Um, so I still have physical reaction. I've talked about the book. Um, Please don't respond if it triggers any bad and that was not, that's never my intention. And I know how difficult it, how stomach get, can get churning. So I uh, don't no, want to cause that. I just want to share. Um, I, I knew when I wrote the story in the book that I would, uh, I was signing up to publicly talk about this. And I think it's important that I do because there's so much to be learned from, from those experiences. But I, um, I share that um, uh, reflection that, it is a physical reaction every time I speak uh, about various moments, including that scene. 
um, really reflecting how difficult that moment was. And I would say uh, that was one of uh, the most painful um, uh, moments that made me feel uh, miserable beyond anything I could have ever imagined or expected um, in my life. And just to give the context for the audience, um, it is a moment where we are really starving in, in our household and uh, we are trying to survive. And we have this out of our living room, we're trying to sell a couple of things um, in order to, to survive. Um, and my mother decides that she is going to go and purchase something, um, oil, salt, uh, flour um, from the enemy from the Serb military. And that may uh, seem so absurd and unbelievable, but it is actually a reflection of the extent of desperation that we had felt. The only way we could survive was to actually go and either buy food in the black market, which was being sold at incredible prices that we just simply couldn't afford, we could starve or we could risk our lives, risk getting killed and raped um, to try to cross the enemy lines and uh, buy the food, hopefully uh, uh, from Serb, Serbian soldiers uh, who wanted to make money in addition to wanting to eradicate us. And so my mother and I get on a bus and go to uh, the border of the Bihaj pocket with um, actually Croatia. And as I mentioned earlier, that part was occupied by Serbs and we walked through a minefield. Um, we um, end up um, encountering a Serb soldier and try to inquire about food. And in that moment, the soldier attacks me with the intent of um, raping or killing me uh, and likely both. And um, my only luck in that moment was that he was so drunk um, that he slipped. And that was an opportunity in which my mother was able to save me along with one shot that was fired by a Bosnian soldier who likely was watching that encounter and knew what would have happened to me. And my mother and I run back through the minefield, obviously another um, uh, moment where we could have been blown up, but it was pure luck uh, that um, I survived that encounter. And so that moment um, really captures um, that uh, desire to survive and willingness to put yourself uh, into the hands of your own killers and at their own mercy, hoping that there's some level of, of mercy in their hearts um, and that we would be able to bring some food um, to, to our home um, and survive. And so uh, that moment was very difficult. I can certainly share that I didn't uh, sleep for a few days um, after writing that chapter. And um, this is something that my family experienced that they, my husband and, and my daughters uh, who were always worried, they always knew when I wrote a particular uh, a chapter or, or shared a, a certain story, they knew because um, I was deeply, always deeply affected by it. Thank you so much for sharing it and for writing it. Um, now that you also mentioned that desire 
for survival and you write about it actually in the book you you say after what i've seen i don't know if i believe in miracles anymore but i believe in the will of people to survive how does as we listen throughout the years more and more survivor stories and as they're being shared i want to ask you how does that resilience both of ordinary people as well as in Bihać, in Bosnia, as well as those Muslim soldiers who were just citizens and ordinary people becoming an army. And you do mention the fighters of the renowned Fifth Corpus as well. How does it all seem in the hindsight? You know, um, the the biggest question that remains for me unanswered is how how could Serbs do what they did? And again, I'm gonna Uh, say that not all have participated in genocide, but many did, and many did watch it happen and did nothing about it. And so that that is one question that continues to remain unanswered for me. What happened to humanity? How was it possible um, um, to execute genocide, often with people that, that they knew or were familiar with? I had my own uncle who was married into my mom's family, a high-ranking officer in Milosevic army in Belgrade who partook in everything that had happened to me. Um, but in addition to that, just thinking about their sur- survival, I think when one goes through, through the extreme form of violence, um, such as genocide, then that uh, level of visceral hatred where you, you have a certain level of awareness that it is highly unlikely that you would survive. I had a feeling or expectation that I would die. And I have to say, I one way that I had coped um, or tried to build my own resilience was not to convince myself I would survive or having a positive outlook, which is often a, a trait that many, many studies suggest is important. But I also adapted myself and trained myself um, to in my own mind, when I would go back uh, to bed, I would think about what would I do as an example with the Serb soldier? What would I do in that situation? And, and how would I handle rape? How would I handle being in a concentration camp? And a uh, conclusion I came to was that the, the only way I can respond to what was happening to me was to try to live the best version of my life that I could given the means that I had and given circumstances I was in for as long as possible, because I knew I was going to die. And my only hope was that that death death wouldn't happen in a rape camp for Muslim girls. I would go to bed not thinking about going to college or getting a PhD or having dreams that I used to have before the war. I would uh, go to sleep hoping that Um, I will have some food the next day and hoping that if I die tomorrow, that it will be a quick death, that I will not, as many of my friends that I grew up with, um, uh, die suffering. Uh, Some lost their limbs from bombing and uh, suffered for years before uh, before they passed on. And so um, you train yourself to adapt yourself, uh, really to process in that moment what's occurring to you. And I would say the trauma then, the experience of processing trauma comes only afterwards because in that active survival mode, one does not have time to be processing what is occurring. And as you know, throughout the book, my brother and I 
often um, hide our experiences from our parents because we didn't want to inflict additional pain. Yeah, and you 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 do mention a sense of solidarity so lovingly between friends at school often um, between you and your brother and you say you wipe your tears you you greet your family with a smile and uh, you try to stay cheerful for each other and that's why I also wanted to ask you uh, to tell our listeners and viewers a little bit about the place of humor, because you do uh, talk about that as well. It's incredible. It's extraordinary to those who haven't experienced this. That's why I always think it's very important to to kind of uh, share that part, because that also humanizes people who today are survivors um, as well. Um, you tell a little bit about it and how you were, people are were still cracking jokes and uh, trading stories, but only cheerful ones. Can, can you just tell those in the audience a little bit about that aspect of living um, throughout those years? Um, of course. And, um, you know, one, one aspect that's surprising, I think, to a lot of readers is, um, especially when I get emails from people who knew nothing about Bosnia and they read that initial description. This is a stunning memoir of a genocide survivor. Their expectation is that only horrific things have happened. And when they read the book, they really fall in love with characters. Um, and they realize that there was so much love. I fell in love for the first time during the war. And in a way, that was a funny decision as well, because I, um, I was this complete nerd prior to the war and boyfriends and boys were not anywhere um, on my priority list. And then I realized in the war that I'm going to die. So if I'm going to die, at least I want to kiss a boy. Um, <laughs> so I have my sort of to-do list of things that teens would want to experience um, before dying. <laughs> um, but um, there's also culturally, there's a lot of humor. Um, and I think in Bosnian culture, we we like to uh, 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 joke and, and make fun of ourselves. Um, and that is also present uh, in the book. You know, one moment that I always remember is um, us kind of fighting over each other. Who is going to grab a chocolate that was floating down, down the river, um, Una, while we were as teens playing around? Then it turns out it was just a paper. Um, and, and so there, there are a lot of fun uh, uh, moments that we still got to enjoy. And I think that sense of, levity in the book and, and, and lightness um, is present. And it also reflects the true experience um, that we tried to enjoy life to the extent it was possible. Mm-hmm. And you so beautifully thanked the people who fought for the freedom of Bosnia and Herzegovina at the end of your book, um, not just in the epilogue, but what you wrote afterwards as well. I thought it was so powerful and sad and true reading it that um, as you wrote, that that jacket illustration serves, as you say, as a reminder that hate is a product of its perpetrators rather than a reflection of its victims. Can we unpack that a little bit? It's especially in terms of how does that continue to resonate when you say to those who spent trying years trying to kill me, it never mattered who I was. It was how they saw me. Uh, whether in the context of Bosnia and Herzegovina, what had happened, but in different geographical context that you're familiar now with, including United States or refugee crisis in, the, in Europe uh, or elsewhere as well, 
these are so powerful, these sentences, these words. What mattered was how they saw me. Um, you know, I, I really wrote those words with, with intent to deliver the message that in this context today, globally, as you mentioned, or within the United States, we're really, you could change the context and the characters, but we're really replicating the same mistakes of the past. We're seeing all these narratives of hate emerge, whether it's neo-Nazis um, or white supremacists. Um, uh, you could change the labels and the names, but the narrative of othering and uh, lessening other groups of people and portraying them in some monolithic, dangerous, uh, violent way uh, is still here. Islamophobia, as you know, is prevalent um, in Europe, all the data suggests that Muslims are the least desirable neighbors in the United States. Vast majority of Americans are afraid of violence in the name of Islam. And Muslims are often equated to terrorists. And um, during the war in Bosnia and for years prior to the war, so leading up to the war, I think the primary tool um, to achieve genocide and to get ordinary Serbs to hate so viscerally uh, Bosnian Muslims and Muslims in general uh, was really predicated on developing that narrative through media, through entertainment, um, through uh, uh, really propaganda that Slobodan Milosevic as then president of uh, Serbia uh, initiated. And so I was seen as a Mujahideen, as this um, a terrorist uh, that that represented some form of ethnic impurity mm -hmm. in white Christian Europe. And it didn't really matter whether I was a terrorist or not. What mattered was the perception of me. And so because you mentioned the cover, I, you know, some people are surprised and I'm just going to show it here. Some people are surprised when they see this, this represents me. And, and there's a story in, in the book, how I decide to, uh, resist not being able to change anything about my life and, you know, get a hair dye smuggled uh, <laughs> through the siege to, um, to really dye my hair. But as a Muslim woman, I don't look like based, based on that stereotype, on, uh, on that Islamophobic bias of what the Muslim woman looks like. I don't look like one. Yet I am being killed for being one. And so you can see, in fact, in the background, um, the the illustration includes a mosque from a village um, of Ahmici that was blown up. And as you likely rather know, 80% of mosques in Bosnia have been either destroyed or damaged. And so I was being executed because anything that represented Islam was perceived as dangerous. It didn't really matter that I was just a little girl who wanted to dye her hair red and fall in love and do her math and physics homework. That was entirely irrelevant to those who hated me. It's so, uh, I mean, we, I speak about dehumanization um, as much as I can in this podcast, in the power and the danger of dehumanization, what it means and what you mentioned about the perceptions uh, studies show was that it's that essentialization about blood and something internal even that's transmitted through generations would, of that those who dehumanize the other, in this case, if we speak about Muslims, uh, as it was the case with the Jews, regardless of how who you are, you are always going to be the Torah 
or Turk in this particular context and somebody who needs to be eradicated, unfortunately. And you mentioned also white supremacy. It was very interesting. I think today, a couple of hours ago, I, I read the news that UN chief Antonio Gutierrez uh, said white, white supremacy is a global threat now um, and that it's actually a transnational threat. And we, uh, Bosniaks, I think have been very vocal about it, including the Christchurch massacre that I want to mention in terms of the resonance of Bosnian genocide within these networks of white supremacists around the world who have been using tropes and memes. So um, I am glad that this is kind of getting the attention, uh, even though it's I, it's always we told you so, we keep telling you so, but we keep, need to keep telling uh, about both experiences that we know of. And then, as you say, in terms of the lessons that you draw and that you have used to become active in fighting against different kinds of discrimination um, in this context as well. Last question before I get to that five sweet questions. While I appreciate very much your time with us today, I know how busy you are. Considering the pervasive culture of genocide denial in the region, Amra, and current lack of leadership, current as in the past 25 years, actually willing to take the steps necessary for facing some tough um, realities, what? How do you see the? future of the region? How does it look like uh, from your perspective, both as a scholar and as somebody who is a genocide survivor? You know, I, I think the, the primary task uh, for, uh, for all of us who are interested in, in peace in the region, and certainly for, uh, for those of us who are interested in survival of Bosnia and Herzegovina, which, as you know, has had thousand-year-long history, even though it's been this diamond in the region that everybody wanted in one way or another for themselves. And so Bosnia has always been that target of um, um, sort of other powers, uh, whether from the East or, or the West, in terms of um, their intent to occupy and dominate the region. But we always persisted and, and uh, survived. Um, I do think that there is a huge uh, issue with continuing to have de facto racial segregation, if you will, or ethnic segregation in the country, which is legitimized with Serb Republic or Republika Srpska. Um, so I think the, the crucial problem that continues to keep these tensions in the region alive is the fact that the international community stopped short of really ensuring that Bosnia and Herzegovina exists as one functional state and has allowed for the country to be divided into two regions that are primarily on the Serb side, it is a region that is largely mono-ethnic. And so if we were to, in the United States to ever uh, uh, um, accept uh, or even think about allowing any group um, to have, let's say white supremacists to have white republic, it would be repugnant, it would be unacceptable, it would be not something ever uh, possibly contemplated, but to allow that to happen in Bosnia and Herzegovina, I think, is to the disadvantage of anyone who says that they are uh, genuinely interested in social justice. So what I do think is that the United States of America didn't quite understand at the time when in 1995, Dayton Peace Accord was signed, that in fact, Serb Republic um, committed genocide. We now know, based on the decisions of the International uh, 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 Court of Justice, that in fact, uh, Serb Republic's military executed 
uh, genocide in Bosnia against Bosnian Muslims. So I think we do need to reinvent uh, Bosnia and that reinvention is fairly simple, which means ending uh, the existence of the Serb Republic on the grounds that it legitimizes genocide. And we simply can't in at this time in our shared global history, if we wanna have an effective change uh, in the world anywhere, we can have uh, a remnant of, um, of ethnic or racial segregation in existence anywhere. And we have that in Bosnia today. And with the particularity, I think, of uh, not just genocide denial, but triumphalism, which I think is a very specific thing. And I always like to emphasize it when we speak about genocides as well. And that the 10 stages, well, we know from Haris Halilovic and the 11th stage of triumphalism, which is a really, really uh, incredulous to keep observing. And even it feels as if it's rising. Uh, we, every day I see on social media, it's shared, whether a mosque, whether a graffiti, whether a street named here or there. It, it, it goes outside of uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina with the Montenegro events recently, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, there is so much to keep talking about and doing and to keep listening and to keep uh, conversing uh, with uh, with the international community and also among ourselves. I believe that, uh, and we spoke a little bit about it before in terms of owning up who we are. And that's what uh, people like you and many others are doing by uh, really sharing their stories with authority uh, that um, has previously, for all sorts of political reasons, not being granted um, with all the consequences that um, came out of it. So, Amra, that said, let's now get to the five sweet questions part. It's uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's one of my uh, really well, not my favorite. Everything is favorite when I have conversations with my guests, but it's different part of uh, how I wish uh, li listeners and readers and viewers to get to know the guests. So that said, uh, first question: Once the current uh, global pandemic emergencies over. And I don't even, I always say over in terms of quotation marks. I don't even know what that will mean for, uh, for us. Um, we will forget some things, but I want to ask you, what is it that you will not forget from this period? <laughs> Does it include pre-pandemic? Can I share? No. <laughs> no, it includes the pandemic lockdowns, because usually it's what do you want to forget? But I want to ask, what do you not want to forget? Because um, it can trigger different things and people say different, um, really, because of their different experiences. So um, it's sure. it makes you think in different direction. Sure. Um, you know, I think for me, the best part, uh, if one could say that there there is a great part of, of a global pandemic, but the best kind of side effect of it um, has been that um, I got to spend more time, much more time than I would ordinarily with my family. So in one, in one way, um, when I was uh, preparing for the publicity of my book prior to pandemic, we talked about traveling and all these events and the book is um, uh, likely going to be translated actually in Turkish um, uh, in addition to uh, Bosnian, right, yeah. and I've been speaking um, all over the world, um, Austria, Germany, Australia, Indonesia, Turkey, Tunisia, uh, Belgium, Norway, UK. Um, and I was preparing for a lot of traveling. And then um, 
that didn't happen. And while I'm doing it all virtually, um, in a way, I feel spoiled to have this luxury of also being with my family. And I think uh, this is particularly true for women um, that we have to always sacrifice something. And uh, mom is always needed when somebody has a cold or um, has a problem. Um, and I have two um, uh, young, uh, well, they're teens, um, young, lovely ladies as, as my daughters. And it's wonderful to be able to be here and to be here all the time with them. Um, so I would say that's the, um, that has been the best part that I will, uh, I'm, I'm not going to miss pandemic, but I'm going to miss when I have to travel, when I have to be uh, away from my family for as much as I think I will be um, after this pandemic. Mm. So second question, which of your personality traits has been the most useful? Not the best trait, but the most useful. Oh, persistence. I never give up. I I just don't give up. Um, And... uh, and maybe it's a it's a it's a benefit of of living through genocide, right? Where so many disappointments happen, and if you gave in to those disappointments, where would you be? So um, I just don't give up, even if other people say you can't get it done, you won't get it done. I actually persist even more to make sure I get it done. When you have 30 minutes of free time, how do you pass that time? And I don't know whether pre-pandemic or post-pandemic changes <laughs> this answer to this question, but okay, I'll I'll tell you um I'll tell you two things. Uh, so one, I love watching romantic comedies that mm-hmm. teens love to watch. They don't uh, make them good anymore. Tell me I if you know. have if, if you have anyone to offer to offer to suggest. Tell me, I just oh, don't so see it. It's like I, I like Sweet Home Alabama or mm. I like Pretty Woman, and mm. um, my kids always make fun of me, and I always tell them, "Well, I never got to be a teen, right? Mm. I was surviving." Mm. Um, so if I, uh, you know, to kind of step away from all the work that's heavy, um, a lot of heavy lifting that I do. Um, and requires um, quite a few brain cells and and is emotional and deep work. I like simple movies. Um, I I don't like violence in the movies. I like movies that always have a happy ending. (laughs) Yeah. Um, They really, I'm trying to, I I flip through Netflix, especially now that I'm pregnant and I can't take too much of heavy stuff and I can't find them. So I'm, I am going back to the old classics as well. What skill or craft would you like to get better at Amra? Oh, I, I wish I could sing, but I don't think I'll ever get better at that. <laughs> That's one thing I can't, I can't do. And I just forgot to tell you, I love gardening too. That's another mm, oh yeah. love of mine. I love gardening, but yeah, I would love to sing, but I can't. Mm. All right. I'm hope. <laughs> yeah. Um there's karaoke. I mean, I dare to at least just do karaoke. <laughs> when people don't expect much from you, that's where I can dare to sing as well. I'm not good at it either. Um are any of your friends our last question, are any of your friends completely opposite to you or are most of them similar to you? Oh, I have friends who are very different than me and who are very sim- similar to me. So it's I I really do have a um that's one thing that I've always treasured, I think, because I came here alone. I came to the U.S. Mm-hmm. alone. And so I, as I went through life, 
I adopted friends, um, you know, whether they wanted me as a friend or not <laughs> is the question, but I just tried to increase my uh, uh, kind of friend group and friend circle to be very broad. And, and uh, I have friends all over the world. I have friends who are very, very different. You know, I have friends who are um, yoga instructors and opera singers and who are um, on Wall Street and who are academics and um, uh, friends who um, have very different interests. I kind of don't pick um, um, and choose based on commonalities. I just choose based on whether I think that, that somebody has a good heart and mm -hmm. I can have a good laugh with them and I can enjoy, enjoy my time with them. And so it's a really broad group. Mm. Well, that said, on that note, um, I want to recommend everyone to everyone to really, really uh, take this book. I have a Kindle version and it's underlined and I uh, warmly recommend to all of you, you will not regret it. It's beautifully written. It's really, really beautifully written, Amra. Uh, congratulations again. Thank you so much for all the, uh, for your time, uh, for sharing all your insights. Um, there were more questions that I had prepared that I wanted to ask you that I know we could talk about maybe at another occasion. I know you're uh, prolific and have many things um, preparing and I always look forward and look forward to reading and learning from you is there any message at the end before uh, we wrap it up and say goodbye to our listeners and viewers well i want to thank you for not only inviting me today and having this wonderful conversation um with me but also for doing the great work that you do and asking uh, deeper questions meaningful questions i've done so many um interviews and your questions uh really reflect the your own thinking uh and trying to excavate um, the emotions, the 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 ideas that I try to deliver in this book that may not be as obvious um, through the story. So I appreciate you doing that work, and um, I look forward to our next conversation whenever that happens. Thank you so much, Amra, for those kind words. I was uh, keeping myself from not letting the tears go dry <laughs> through my eyes. Um, and um, I appreciate that. And I think that uh, we need to hear more stories of uh, genocide survivors, of those who are scholars uh, like yourself. But something that I say in the context of Bosnian genocide when I'm asked that everybody has a role to play and the role that they choose to play, whether they're dentists, architects, artists, filmmakers as well, um, and that we need to just allow each other the opportunity to try to contribute as uh, best as we deem fit towards not just memorialization, but the, this fight against genocide, triumphalism, and denialism. That said, uh, you know what to do, and I hope that you enjoyed this conversation, that you learned that you will read Amra's book, and uh, stay tuned for for more conversations with people from all over the globe, share this and uh, write, write me a message and uh, I will talk to you soon. Have a nice day.